You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Thanks to me, the, uh, the shortest passage of scripture that we'll handle through the whole uh, journey through James. Um, and I need, uh, I need a little bit of congregational participation help this morning uh, as we get started. I need you to finish this sentence. Are you ready for me? Cross my heart and hope to die. Poke a needle in my... Okay, this one might be a little more regional. I don't know if the third one is as well known. Eat a cow poo pie. Nobody? That was just us? Okay. Well, you knew the first two, right? I mean, those are pretty familiar words for us. And uh, how many of you remember saying that? How many, how many said, said that when you were kids? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did a bunch. Um, that was our go-to. You got to believe me. I'm telling the truth, cross my heart, hope to die, right? And as we grow, that, that morphs a little bit, right? We kind of, that matures with us a little in, uh, in the teen years and adulthood. It's pretty common to hear people say, I swear to God, right? I swear to God it's true. Or simply, I swear it. Now, my, my mom would have washed my mouth out with soap if I'd have said I swear to God. Um, but it's the same principle. Um, or if it's a promise, I'm going to be there. I will, I will be there, so help me God. All those are examples of making an oath. Connecting uh, our words to some, uh, some action or uh, to someone as this convincing people of our truthfulness. We see oaths used uh, around us in more formal ways as well. People uh, testifying in a court of law. They put their hand on the Bible and, and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. The president takes a solemn oath to fulfill his duty and to serve his country, a bride and groom. Stand before God and make an oath to one another to be faithful. Doctors, policemen, soldiers, actually I was chatting with Jared Hamilton this week, doctors take three oaths, or sorry, I'm getting my Jareds confused. Um, Jared Hamilton, um, police officer. They take three oaths on their way into um, police service. Um, We see these things around us. And so you might be forgiven for feeling a little uncomfortable as you look ahead at today's passage. Just one verse, but it packs a punch. Um, Let me read verse 12 for us. James writes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is that us? Does that apply to the the things that we've just talked about? Um, Well, let me pray, and then we'll slow down and take a closer look at this passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true, that it is as unchanging as you are, that every word of God proves true. 
Lord, we stand on um, the foundation of your truth. God, I pray this morning um, you would open our eyes, that our hearts might be softened, um, that your spirit would be at work in us by your word this morning, that we would be um, challenged where we need to be challenged, that we wouldn't be um, convicted, um, encouraged, built up, Lord, that we would be formed evermore to the image of Christ by uh, your grace. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we have to talk about is what is this verse even doing here? Why, why is it where it is? And uh, I'll, I'll admit, I started this week studying um, verses 12 to 18, and, uh, and I ended this week with a sermon on verse 12. Um, by about Thursday, I went, no, I, I got I to gotta flip plans here. Um, there's just a lot of, it's not clear. Where does this fit in? Um, some scholars actually will take this verse and say, see, this is evidence um, that the book of James wasn't written by James at all. This is just a compilation of, of random uh, sayings that were all just kind of put together and they tacked James's name on it. Now, obviously, they have a significantly lower view of Scripture um, than, than we would hold. And, uh, and I think as we work our way through this book and see the, the cohesion of James's thought and the, uh, the clarity of it, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. Um, but this verse is just kind of dropped in here in some ways. It's awkward. Uh, some say uh, it fits with the verses above, that uh, this idea of not taking vows is connected with the idea of, of being patient through trials and suffering. Um, this was part of the church and how they were to endure with honesty and integrity and I can see that. that. That makes sense. There's some tie-in there. Um, but as I was studying last week, I went, ah, I don't think that's strong enough to really put those into one sermon. Others would argue that this verse connects mostly to verses 13 to 20. And that's kind of the assumption I was working off of as I started my sermon. Um, verse 12 starts with these words, above all. And it's pretty hard to make the argument that this is like, the most significant thing that James has said to this point. Um, another option, it's, it's faithful to the words that are there to say this isn't, this isn't saying that this is the best, the most important thing, but rather he's kind of transitioning um, to his closing statement. He's, he's transitioning into his conclusion of his letter. And so verse 12 about making vows then, if you kind of connect it to the verses below, is him um, saying this is, the, this is the wrong use of the tongue um, before he transitions then into writing about prayer and the right use of the tongue. Um, and that makes some sense as well. I think there is that flow through it, uh, and yet it, it really does just kind of stand on its own a little bit. And so that's how I want to deal with it. Um, and, uh, and I'm comfortable saying, I'm not entirely sure why this is here, and it's a little bit awkward, but that's okay. It's here. The Holy Spirit has given it to us, and so let's deal with it. Let's take it as it is. Um, so the first thing I think we see in this passage, um, in, in verse 12, is the problem of the vow. The problem of the vow. James starts with, as I said, this somewhat perplexing statement, above all, that, that seems a little odd. Um, I don't think it means the most important thing that he said yet. Um, I think actually, the way I understand it, I, I think he's, he's making the last statement of the sins of the tongue. 
right? He's saying, I'm going I'm to wrap this up. I'm going to bring my, my letter into a conclusion. It has that to it. But, but he's making this kind of final statement of the sins of the tongue. He, he introduced this idea back in chapter 3, talking about the tongue and this, this restless evil and how, how dangerous the tongue is. And then uh, he kind of salted that through. He talked about quarrels and fighting. And then he talked about judging and speaking evil against one another. Uh, he talked about our, our arrogant boasting with our tongue, about our plans for the future, and then grumbling and complaining against one another. And so I think verse 12 is like the, the wrap-up, the final one of these sins of the tongue. And the problem is swearing. And, and depending on your translation, um, some will use that phrase, don't swear, and, and we right away have this broad category. Does that include uh, like cursing and vulgar speech? Um, that's an English confusion, not a Greek confusion. Um, the Greek word is about taking oaths. Um, elsewhere, the Bible talks about purity of speech and, and, and those things, um, crass speech and coarse joking. Um, but right here, the focus is on swearing as in the taking of an oath. That's what is being uh, forbidden here. And James wasn't the first one to say this. Uh, in fact, James really says nothing original here at all. Um, we've seen a few times as we've kind of come through this book how James is, uh, is echoing Jesus. Um, and we see it most clearly in the book of Matthew and, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, I think there'd be an argument to be made that James is just about sees himself as preaching a sermon uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. But um, here he doesn't even just parallel the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is just plagiarism. Like he's just ripping Jesus off, which if you're going to plagiarize somebody, Jesus is a, is a good one to go for. Um, at least you know you're right. Uh, but listen, listen to Matthew chapter 5, um, verses uh, 33 to 37. And uh, this, is, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's Jesus' preamble. Now listen to this. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Um, so James kind of condenses it. He gives us a little less detail, but, but if any college professor were to kind of run this through his plagiarism scanner, this is popping up. He, he's, he's quoting Jesus here. And so both Jesus and James um, make this, this strong condemnation against the practice of making an oath. And so we should just be able to stop right there, right? Like, let's close in, close in prayer. Um, don't make oaths. Amen. Um, now, some traditions would, would be kind of that black and white on it. Um, the Mennonite church is kind of known for this position, right? They will not take an oath. And, and so they have some kind of creative ways. Uh, if, if they're in a courtroom situation and they're asked to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the, nothing but the truth, um, they, they won't say, I swear it. They'll say, I affirm it. And so it's a bit of a language game, but, uh, you know, I get it. Um, they take this very black and white, and, and I have respect for that. Um, there's some admiration for that position. It's clear, it's simple, it's consistent. Um, but I don't think the situation 
is quite that simple. I think it's a little more complex as we kind of dig into what's going on here. And the complexity begins to emerge uh, as we kind of take a broader view of Scripture and look at what, is, what does the Bible teach as a whole. And when we ask, kind of, does, does the Bible as a whole support this idea of this kind of complete ban on making any oaths, um, I, I think we get a different picture. And so we're going to do kind of a quick Bible overview this morning. We're going to run through some, um, some different uh, contexts. I'm, I'm not going to overload you with passages. If you want to look these up later, you're welcome to do that. But um, just stick with me. We're just going to do a, a quick theology of oath-taking throughout Scripture. Um, there are countless oaths made through the Old Testament. And so you have Abraham swearing oaths on a number of occasions. Um, David uh, swore an oath with Jonathan, with Saul, and with the Lord. Um, the people of Israel gathered together to make an oath to the Lord to follow him. Um, not only that, but there are a couple of occasions where God actually even commands oath-taking. In the law, in, in Exodus 22, um, if you were to borrow a, a, a work animal, or maybe you were taking care of someone's uh, livestock, a sheep or a, a goat or a, a cow, and that animal died or was hurt on your land and nobody saw it, um, you were to take an oath. You were to take an oath that you were not the one who harmed the animal, um, and by taking that oath, you were cleared of guilt. That was the law. There's another one in Numbers 5, a woman who is accused of adultery could prove her innocence by taking an oath before the Lord uh, in front of her husband. And, and, and if she was to take that oath, she was to be trusted and considered as innocent. Now, it's particularly interesting, I think, um, that God actually says, when you make an oath, when you do swear, swear by me. I was like, what? That's what my mom got so angry about. I couldn't do that. That's what God says to do. So Deuteronomy 6.13 it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So we're supposed to do that. Interesting. The context there, though, is, is, gives us some backstory. Um, God is telling the Israelites to be faithful to him. He's, he's corralling them and hedging them against the idolatry and false gods that were all around them. And he's saying, when you make a vow, don't make a vow to some false god. Like, that's giving them credibility. That's giving them honor, right? And so if you say, oh, I, I vow by Dagon, well, what are you saying? And God says, no, no. If you're going to make a vow, you vow by me. You swear by me. It was this statement of, of honor and respect to the Lord. But, of course, flowing out from that, Leviticus 19.12, the Lord goes so far, uh, kind of one step further. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so when you're making an oath, when, you're, when, you're, when you swear, you're to swear before the Lord and, and call God as your witness. Um, but then you better fulfill that. That's a big deal. That's a serious thing. Um, what, what you're doing is kind of taking... Um, the integrity and the honor of God and connecting that to the statement that you're about to make. You're saying, my statement is as true as God himself. And if that statement turns out to be false, you're, you're lying about God. You're, you're dragging God's uh, honor then through the mud. And so God says, if you're going to swear, swear by me. 
And if you're going to swear by me, you better keep it. That's a serious thing. To fail to follow through on that was a big deal. Now, all of that is, is very interesting kind of backdrop. It gets us thinking about vows today and, and, and what that might mean for us. Um, but I think there's a couple more that are, that are a little more game-changing. So the first is this, that God himself takes vows. What are the covenants with Abraham, with Jacob, with David, uh, other than a vow? This whole ceremony, if you go to Genesis 15, you see the, the, the animal is cut in half and the two parts are, are spread either side and the Lord himself walks between the two halves. This is a, a formal ceremony of, of making a, a vow. This is God himself saying, cross my heart, hope to die. And, and God, um, as, as Hebrews 6.13 points out, God follows his own rule, right? Hebrews 6.13 um, draws our attention to the fact that, that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God said to Abraham, I swear by me that I will make you this great nation, that I will bring about a people by you. God makes formal vows, and he fulfills his promises. Often throughout the Old Testament, you'll read that statement, um, as I live, declares the Lord. There it is. That's God making a vow by himself. As sure as I am the living God, so sure is this word that you're, that you're about to receive. Um, that's God making vows. And so if, if swearing a vow is, is just kind of categorically wrong and, and always wrong, it's very odd that we would see God doing it. And, and there are some things for sure that, that God can do that we cannot. Um, taking a life would be a good example. Um, I don't think this is one of those. I don't think that's what's happening in this situation. Because even after Jesus wrote these words and James wrote these words, um, Paul, under the in inspiration of the Holy Spirit, li listen to, to Romans 1 verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. He says, I swear to God, as him as my witness, you know that I pray for you often. Galatians 1.20, he writes, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's, he's swearing by the Lord. It's not quite as clear, but Jesus, as he stood before um, his accusers, they asked, are you the son of God? And he said, it is as you say. They, they called him into um, a proper formal vow, um, and, and he did not turn it down. He said, yes. So all that to say, I think there's good reason to wrestle with this a little bit, that it's a little more complex than simply a command not to make any vows. And I think... The key to understand this um, is seeing when, when Jesus picks this same topic up later. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 23, maybe flip over there if you want. Uh, Matthew 23, um, verse 16. And so, remember the Pharisees, these are the Jewish teachers of the law. They're famous for their very careful, intentional interpretation of the law, but not always in a good way, right? These guys are like the worst 
of the lawyers of our day who are, are just looking for every loophole, every way to twist the law, to bend it to their benefit, to make it serve them. Um, and that's exactly what they're doing here. Um, listen to this and, and pay attention. Remember Matthew 5 and kind of look for these, these parallels of what's going on. Um, Jesus says this in, in uh, Matthew 23, 16. Woe to you. He's calling down a condemnation on them. You blind guides who say, if someone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold in the temple or, the temp- or that which makes the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So it's very interesting. Jesus is hitting the subject again and he doesn't say don't swear. He doesn't lay that law down here. But he condemns them for their false swearing, for manipulating God's law about oath-taking. What they had done, they're they're looking at Leviticus 19.12, the same verse when Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, this is what he's looking at. This is Mosaic law, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And they, like any good, devious, clever child, um, twists their parents' words um, They figured, well, if we're not to swear by the name of the Lord falsely, that means we can swear by other things falsely, right? Like you didn't say that, God, um, as if that wasn't implied. But that means if you swore by anything else, if you swore by something lesser, something that was kind of close to the Lord but not quite him, well, then you could get away with it. Then you could lie and you wouldn't be held accountable. Um, So this is very much the kid on the playground, right? He said... Cross my heart, hope to die, poke a needle in my eye. But what was he doing behind his back? Ha ha, have my fingers crossed, I don't have to. Right? This, these are the kinds of games they think they're, they're playing with God and, and getting away with, they, they think. And so somehow they figured that made it okay. And they had this kind of complex hierarchy that you can kind of hear in Jesus' words here. They had these rules. So, so if you swore by the gold in the temple, that's close to God. You're bound by that oath. But if you just swore by the temple in general, uh, people might believe you. They might be convinced that you're being honest, but you don't have to keep that one. That's not quite close enough to God. And so, you know, if you were were to swear um, by the throne of God, well, you're bound by that. That's very close to God. If you say, I swear by the throne of God, but but if you're clever enough just to kind of swear by heaven in general, oh, that one, you know, then you're off the hook. And so you can imagine how frustrating and ridiculous this is. Like imagine the, this is brought into court. Well, he swore an oath. Well, I swore by this. Well, where does that fall in the hierarchy? We have to decide, is he bound by that oath or not? And, and when you understand Matthew 23 like that, and then you go back to Matthew 5, and, and Jesus is talking to the same people about the same issue, listen to it again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. What's Jesus saying? 
He's saying, your, your little hierarchical system, th- this is nonsense. It falls apart because everything, heaven and earth, right down to the hairs on your own head, lead back to God. It's all under his authority. It all belongs to him. And so at bottom, um, what does this whole system show about them? It shows what was in their hearts. It was dishonesty. That's what Jesus is getting after. That's what he's hunting for here. These people were bent on lying and defrauding. They were people who were, who were working incredibly hard to find ways to convince you that they were being honest when they were just trying to get away with lying. And that's what Jesus is attacking. Um, Jesus changes the focus, right? You have this outward exterior system of vows that is kind of meant to constrict you to tell the truth. But the heart is the problem. It's what's underneath that. And so Jesus, again, he doesn't just change the law. He doesn't say, oh, that law is no good. We need another law. Don't do oaths at all. Because you could also obey that law and be totally dishonest, couldn't you? I mean, you can just be very careful not to quite make an oath, but make people think you gave an oath. Um, Make them, or whatever, even just to say, yes, I'll do it, and then not. The heart problem is still there. And so Jesus is going far beyond this just simple command, don't make oaths. He's going, no, no, there's a heart issue here. And this whole system is just a system of deception. And that needs to be done with. And so when James picks this up. Remember, James's readers were Jews who, who grew up as Jews in the synagogue and now have come to Christ. This would have been part of their culture. This was part of their everyday life, this, this making of different categories of vows. And so James is saying, stop. These frivolous, ridiculous, deceitful vows, don't do it. Don't be thinking about, well, what should I vow by? Don't make the vow at all. Now, this is a serious thing. A vow is not to be just thrown out there in everyday life. It was a solemn declaration. And so I don't think Jesus is banning all vows. And I think if we look at some things like the marriage vow, that's an appropriate vow before the Lord. The vow to to tell the truth in a a court of law where, where someone's freedom or someone's life is on the line. Or a vow to to serve honorably as a police officer or a doctor, a position of incredible trust and and great power. Um, Those are appropriate vows. But those are kind of once or twice in a lifetime type events. Vows that that are to be taken very seriously with with preparation, with thoughtfulness, with gravity and solemnity. I, I don't think Jesus is saying don't take a marriage vow. It's a very different thing from this kind of casual throwing around. I swear to God, I'll pay you back next week. Especially when your heart intention is to do otherwise. Don't swear in a way that is intentionally dishonest or a way that is light and cavalier and cheap. A way that drags God's name into the mud. These these kinds of phrases are so common in our day and just as problematic, just as sinful. Cut that kind of speech out. That's the problem of the vow, but we kind of already made the transition a little bit. Jesus doesn't stop there. 
Quit it with these ridiculous, frivolous vows. But then he pushes further to the heart issue beneath that. And that's the principle of integrity. The principle of integrity. That's what he's about. A heart of honesty. That's obedience that he's looking for here. James says, rather than all of these constant and complicated vows that you intend to break anyway, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That simple. Just speak with integrity. Let the truth flow out from your heart rather than be constrained by some outward law. Now that you're followers of Christ, to the church, this this whole system of vow-taking should be obsolete, right? This should be pointless. Really, when you have to say, oh, I swear it, I promise it's it's true, trying to convince someone to trust you, what are you implying? You're kind of unintentionally implying that that you can't trust me when I just simply say yes or no. And so first, Jesus and now James um, simply give this prescription. Don't play those games. Just, Just say yes and let it be yes. Just say no and let it be no. And the principle here again is this absolute truthfulness. And simple as that might sound, that's a big deal. Again, this is actually a much deeper, more significant command than if we just kind of stop at the surface level. Like it would be nice if it was just a don't make a technical oath. Okay, I can do that, right? I can check that box. But with all of these sins of the tongue, James has been hitting on these all the way through his book, it was always about the heart, right? It was always about what was inside, not what's outside. And, and maybe I sound like a broken record and, and maybe that's okay, but... Um, That section in James 3, as he talked about the sin of the the tongue and the way that we speak, the the climax is verses 11 and 12. And he's asking the question, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? What's he saying? He's saying what comes out of you is evidence of what's inside of you. And at this point, these sins of the tongue, they're simply symptoms of the true problem. They're, they're symptoms of a sinful heart. That's the issue. And so whereas these, these vows have become, again, this kind of social structure that, that trapped them, that, that forced them to tell the truth by outward coercion um, because they had said a certain phrase, James is saying, no, you who are in Christ... Rather than being confined by the exterior vow, you should be driven by internal love for the truth, commitment to the truth. This is what should pour forth out of your heart because that's what's in your heart. After all, we are called Christians. We have the name of Christ on us. And not just when we speak, not not just when we make a vow, but in everything we do. It's as if our lives are one big vow made before the Lord. It's interesting that the Mennonite church, I was reading their statement of faith, and uh, their official statement um, about not taking vows comes back to the issue of baptism. And I found it very curious that they, that they bring that in. It makes sense. Um, their argument is, in our baptism, we make a vow to follow the Lord, to be His. And so we cannot make another vow that would compete with that. I'd say... Amen. I can't make a vow that would bind me to disobeying the Lord for sure. 
I'm on board with that. But I think we can push that. I think that's a helpful paradigm. And I think we can just push it a little further. And I don't, I assume they would as well. Um, In our baptism, we made a vow to be his. We made a a vow. We gave ourselves to the Lord and said, um, according to Romans 6, right? That old sinful me who lived for for self and, and, and sin and deceit, he's dead. He's gone. He died on the cross with Christ, crucified. And there's a new me now, a resurrected me who who lives for Christ and belongs to him. And so in much the same way as a kind of a formal vow connects my promise to the character of God, our baptism connects our whole life to the character of God. My life has been given in service to him. I'm his ambassador. I'm his representative, right? A a Christian, a Christian. It literally means a little Christ, a representation of him. We've taken his name on our lives. Is that reflected in your life? Is that reflected specifically in the way that we speak? Can you say that your yes is yes, that your no is no, that that your actions as you speak reflect the truthfulness of God? That's a high bar. You say you're going to do something, you do it. You don't say to people, "Uh, I promise I'll pull through this time. They just expect it of you implicitly because you've built up that kind of reputation. You have that consistent character as the kind of person um, who says, I'll be there, and then they're there. Who says, I'll help with that, and then they help with that. Who says, yes, and they mean yes. Now, we don't want to get ridiculous legalist on this, okay? An estimate is still an estimate, (laughs) A best of my knowledge is still a best of my knowledge. A promise to be there um, that, that, that has a car accident and a coma in between. I'm, I am not infinite. All right, that, that's, that, that's another category. Um, I don't have the ability um, to know all things and to promise with the same certainty as God. But am I being honest? In the, am I, with the best of what I know, all of my intentions, am I being truthful and speaking um, What's in my heart? And then am I willing to follow through on that? And, and yeah, sometimes that hurts. Sometimes there'll be a cost to that. Oh, I wish I had not made that promise. I said I would be at this and I would really rather be at that. I don't want it. Well, am I going to be true to my word? Sometimes that hurts. And we need to be prepared for that. I think we need to be careful about what we say and how we answer, not, not letting our yes be flippant and thoughtless. Wish it would go without saying, but what about wedding vows? You said in a formal vow, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Will you follow through on that? Even when it hurts? Even when the magic is gone? Even if it costs you? Do you stick to your word? Well, it means we need to be a lot more careful with what we say. How is your integrity? Wouldn't that bring glory to Christ as the church lived this out? As we, uh, as a people, were just known as those um, whose yes was always yes. 
were a people that, that lived this out, who had this, this heart of integrity. Put away this, this constant swearing, this trying to bolster up your word and fill out with these great promises. And, and just speak the truth. Just be faithful um, to the point that that's what just people expect from you. So that's the, the problem of the vow and then this principle of integrity. And then finally, James warns about the penalty of judgment. And this, um, again, Becomes very serious. He ends this little verse with the words, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And I think uh, through the context of James, this is very clearly the condemnation of God. So he started with the phrase, above all, and we knew he was serious. Whatever he means by that, he's trying to get our attention. And then he ends with this hammer blow. That those who do not walk in this path of, of integrity, this principled integrity, um, they are at risk of coming under the judgment of God. This is one of those areas that I think we are so prone just to go, really, God? Really? I mean, I think this is a little cruel. I think you're kind of overreacting here. And this isn't the only place that this kind of judgment is threatened. Um, if you grew up as a as a kid, you know, outside of the church, you were just uh, living your happy life without knowledge of God. Um, you probably, on the playground, you probably sang what? Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? That's the kid who crossed his fingers. We're going to shame you by, by singing liar, liar, pants on fire. Well, for those of us who grew up in the church as good little Pharisees, um, we had our own song. Does anyone know where I'm going with this? Josh does. Revelation, Revelation, 21.8, 21.8. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, burn, burn. It's terrible. What a horrible thing. But it's not strictly untrue. Listen to Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we go, really, God? Like, this is one of those, um, wow, that escalated quickly kind of verses. The lake of fire with, with, with I mean, sorcerers and idolaters and, and, and murderers, that makes sense, but, but a lie? Is it, is it worth that? And we ask that question, and we struggle with that reality because we have grown so comfortable in a world of kind of varying degrees of falsehood. We watch TV, we listen to the news, and, and we only expect a small portion of that to be factually true, right? We talk to our friends. Let's flip it. We tell stories about ourselves, and we just exaggerate it a little. We just increase the numbers a little bit. We, we just paint a little better picture, and everyone expects it. I mean, that's socially acceptable. That's just how you tell a good story, right? We tell white lies because we don't want to hurt people, and so we just kind of circumvent the truth there. We bend the truth because I don't want to get into trouble. We tell half-truths because the real truth 
kind of hurts my reputation. I don't want you to see me in that light. So I'm just going to kind of leave those parts off. We wade through this filthy, thick sludge of deception all day long. It's the world we live in. We're a fish in the water. And we come in and out pretty freely through these varying degrees of deception. And so we're acclimatized to it. We're comfortable with it. We don't see it in, in black and white. We don't see clearly. We just kind of see these endless shades of gray. Not so with God. God is the God of truth. He loves the truth. He rejoices in the truth. He is passionate about the truth. He is committed to the truth. Completely. Infinitely. And as such... He has the equal but opposite reaction to lies, to falsehood, to whatever or whomever would undermine the truth. So the Lord is perfectly and infinitely committed to the truth. It's part of the very nature of who he is. And he is therefore perfectly and infinitely opposed to falsehood. Like radically, shockingly opposed. And so what we have here following this command of truthfulness is a very real and serious threat of God's judgment, of God's wrath against liars. Now, I want us to see this from kind of two sides. First, from the perspective and the purpose of James. Within the book of James... Um, from the very beginning, James has been following this one theme that runs through his book. We've not lost sight of it. This idea of authentic faith. James is helping his readers to discern what does true faith look like? What does it mean to actually be saved? And his point here is that a true disciple of Jesus, a true Christian, will be marked by this kind of, of honesty from the heart. They, they won't live in that, in that lying and dishonesty that so offends God and be comfortable with that. Do you want to test your faith? Do you want to test the reality of your claim to be a Christian? Does it hold water? Test your honesty. Is my yes, yes? Is my no, no? If your faith in Christ is authentic, if you have truly been made new and the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you, has given you a new heart, that's, that's going to have evidence. That's going to play out, not perfectly, but increasingly as a person of truth. He will be producing in you a heart like His, a heart that is bent toward the truth, a heart that despises falsehood. And so if you claim Christ, you call yourself a Christian, but your words are just constantly mixed with exaggeration and half-truths and falsehoods, and your heart is kind of just bent toward deception and lies, if that's true of who you are, you're defined more by lies than you are by obedience to Christ. And James says, that's not a safe place to be. You should not have confidence in your standing before the Lord if that's the fruit of your life, if that's the evidence that's in you. Don't take that lightly. James says you're looking down the barrel of God's judgment. 
That's James's purpose, to call us to ask those hard questions, to test our own faith and, and to see um, if he's made a difference in my life. Does my faith have action that follows from it? And if the answer is no, not really, don't put comfort in that. Don't put confidence in that. Um, but of course, that then raises the question of what then? What do I, what do, I do? If I feel the weight of this condemnation hanging over me, what if I look at my own heart and I see a heart that is given to deception? That I live pretty comfortably in that world. And while we're speaking about honesty, let's just admit, none of us does that perfectly, right? None of us is honest to the standard that God has. Who among us could doesn't get caught up occasionally in telling their own story and just kind of inflating that a little bit? Who hasn't shaded the truth to, to, to evade being put in a negative light? Who hasn't said, yes, yes, but in their heart they're thinking, probably not. It's one thing to ask, um, are you generally defined by these truths? But if the standard is the perfect truthfulness of God, and then not one of us meets it, what hope is there for John Anderson, the liar? And that takes us back to Jesus' purpose. That's what Jesus was addressing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. James, again, is kind of building on what Jesus said. He's working with Jesus' words as a, as a foundation, um, and, and, and he's using truthfulness as this test for authentic faith that those who are truly followers of Christ will be producing this in them. But Jesus used these words, not contrary to James, but with a slightly different purpose. Jesus starts the sermon um, with the law of Moses, the law that they knew. This is the law that they as Jews felt pretty good about having kept. And they figured that that they were pretty much good with God because I live a pretty decent life and I can generally follow this. And, and, and yes, they would fit their ridiculous system of vows in that. I kept the law. I only swore by the temple, not the gold in the temple. So I'm okay. God and me are great because I keep the law. And, and Jesus is kind of tearing back the veil and saying, oh, you don't understand the law. Watch him push this from, from the, the exterior rules down to the heart. He says, you have heard it said. He's pointing back to the Old Testament law. You have heard it said, do not murder. And they went, check, never killed anybody. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother in his heart is guilty of breaking the law. Whoa, that's another story. That's a, that's a whole different paradigm. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And they went, yeah, check. But I say to you, whoever even lusts after woman is guilty of adultery because of the sin in his heart. So this is one of those statements. This statement on oath-taking just falls right in that sequence. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't break your vows. But I say to you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You must be perfect in your honesty, flowing out from a heart of honesty. Jesus takes the, the law that God had given and he, and he shows without a shadow of a doubt that it is completely impossible for you to obey. 
that you are, you are not on good terms with God because of your life, because of your kind of exterior, shiny, makeup shell. It's not enough. Why does he do that? I thought Jesus was supposed to be the good guy. He was supposed to help us with this. Well, to bring it back to James, he does it because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Because of all of those who who pride themselves in in keeping God's law, well, they play fast and loose with their words, twisting and manipulating their vows, keeping the, the outward law with a heart of deceitfulness. They're operating out of pride. And they're thinking they can earn heaven. They can live a life good enough to stand before God with this kind of thin veneer of obedience. And Jesus is graciously shattering that glass figurine with a 20-pound sledge. No. His intent is to crush you by the weight of the law. That you would see that you are completely and utterly hopeless on your own to keep even the most basic of God's commands. Am I righteous before God? No. No. We are sinners in such worse shape than we ever could have imagined. If, if God counts every heart sin, oh, we're sunk. And he does that so that we would be humbled before God, so that instead of coming to God in our ignorant pride, holding up this, this sin filthy life, saying, Look, God, see all the great things that I've done? See how f- truthful I was, how perfect I am? God, accept me based on this sin soaked life. He crushes that so that we would rather come crawling to God in brokenness and say, Oh, Lord, I am so far from deserving anything but judgment. I am so far from good before you. I'm in trouble. And the wonder of it, um, Jesus already gave the solution. Jesus introduced the Sermon on the Mount. Before before landing this kind of lineup of knockout punches, he said back in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Don't, don't think I'm lightening the law. I'm not going to come and make the law go away. The law is God's perfect righteousness and it is even heavier than you thought. And I'm not changing that. But what I did come to do is to fulfill it. You can't keep the law. Not even close. Not for a moment. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He fulfilled the law, and he fulfilled it so that we would not have to. He lived this perfect life of obedience and died on the cross, where he is the perfect, holy son of God, took on himself the wrath that we deserved as lawbreakers. And in exchange for our sin, he gives us his perfect holiness. His obedience on us, our sin on him. So that we who are sinners could stand before God as righteous and say, See, Lord, accept me based on what Jesus has done. Not mine. Don't look at me. This is all about him. 
That we could be not only forgiven, but actually made holy in the eyes of God. That's what it means to be saved by faith. To trust in him to do what we never could have done. To rest in that. Josh, why don't you come and we'll begin to prepare our hearts for communion. Because that's exactly what we celebrate. Communion is the celebration of this great truth. That that Christ has died for my sin. That the life I now live is lived by his grace and for his glory. Jesus says, I fulfilled the law so that you don't have to. So that sinners who come to me can be washed and made clean and made holy. But then remember James picks up on that and says, yes, and those who do come to him and are made clean and made holy, they'll show evidence of that. They will be so radically changed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit that it will begin to show in their lives. They will begin to be transformed into this place of joyful obedience to God. Don't take that lightly. And so before we partake together of communion, You need to ask, am I in Christ? Is that me? Am I living a life of repentance and faith? Coming to him in in brokenness and repentance over my sin? And, And is that play out in real life? Is it just words or is it true? Is there evidence and fruit of it? And specifically today, do I live a life of integrity? And if the answer is no, If there are lies in your life that need to be confessed or ongoing habits of dishonesty that you need to repent of, Paul says it's dangerous for you to partake of communion. It's not safe. You need to examine yourself. You may need to pass today to go from here and and confess your sin to, to whoever you've lied to, to whoever's been hurt by your deception, so that you can return two weeks from now as we celebrate communion again and do it with integrity and with joy. Not perfect, right? Not perfect. None of us gets there, but with evidence. And some of that evidence is repentance and confession and growth. So let's rejoice together um, as we celebrate as sinners coming to him. That he, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that because of his death, um, we have new life. Would you stand? We'll sing together, and I'll come back, and we'll partake in a moment.